Don Rahul Jimenez. How amateur is that? Like, you don't even see that down in the park. If they, if they lose, it provides great content. I am supporting every team that plays break. I'm not making a documentary this year about how shit my club is. Mudman, thank you as always. Who would you rather lose it to, by the way, me or Johnny? That's somebody's choice. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Football Babble. Uh, myself and Brenton are joined uh, this very wet Tuesday morning uh, by the brilliant writer and broadcaster and author, Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Um, very excited, Daniel, to have you on because you, you won't know this, but I read your stuff religiously. Um, so I'm quite. <laughs> I, I just are with you. <laughs> <laughs> what boy. I've done is <laughs> what what I've done uh, is basically try and uh, contact everyone I read or listen to and just try and beg them to come on and talk to me on a podcast. And it seems to be working. So uh, you know, long may it continue. Um, we're going to chat today to Daniel about obviously writing some of his favorite pieces. Uh, not in Forest and just generally the state of football at the minute. Because um, some interesting pieces, not just for Daniel, but have been going on. And, and there is some other topics in football rather than just the actual play. Um, but just on, the January transfer window is finally closed. January is finally closed, more to the point. The longest January of all time. Um, and it closed last night, Daniel, with a couple of interesting deals and a couple of interesting loan deals. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Instead of... We didn't see teams breaking the bank for a long ponytailed uh, Newcastle striker for thirty odd five million and wrecked the place, but instead they went and got two players uh, for small fees, one on loan and then loaned someone out. And I wanted to take your thoughts on that and on the loan process that went on. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that that football clubs, even elite football clubs, are going to have their, um, if not have their budget slashed, then then have their budgets unknown for a period of time. And there's clearly a bit of risk-averse transfer activity over that. I think we saw that last summer as well as in January. But they, they clearly feel like the loan market is a, a new way of doing that, a new way of operating, uh, and a kind of risk-free way of operating as well. Most of those deals have obligations, but more often they have they have options to buy so if it works out great if not nobody loses anything and I think I think the players probably like that as well um, you know if you move to an elite club for a, a sizable fee and get a long contract great but other than that it's a chance to for players to to impress new employers um, and that that kind of fits really nicely I think it means that they can um, it means that they those players are motivated to perform and hit the ground running immediately. I was slightly disappointed that that some of these clubs did their business in the last hours of the window rather than the first few days because January was such a busy month that you could have got players for six or seven extra games. Um, So that was a slight disappointment, but it always happens that way. Clubs always leave it late. Was it strange as well, because it was for me being a fan of Liverpool, to see Liverpool leave it so late? I suspect the the news we're hearing about Joel Matip being out for the rest of the season probably forced their hand more than it, it had. I suspect they yeah. looked at more long-term options um, or maybe more permanent options, but kind of came down on the fact that 
you know, playing both Jordan Henderson and Fabinho in midfield uh, and looking how that how they attacked in the second half against West Ham when they're able to play quicker. I think they've been playing slower through midfield because they're, they're trying to protect that defence. So yeah. if they can get actual centre-backs there, it means that maybe they can switch up that style of play. And and the other thing is that they responded really well. You know, two two wins in London in a week, scoring three goals means that title challenge is potentially back on. So I think that probably forced their hand as well. Yeah, uh, I think that the matter, they couldn't even give us like 24 hours of being happy with saying centre-halves. So within about four minutes of Quebec being signed, they're all like, oh, by the way, I'm Maddox out for the season. Yeah, they. I mean, that's got to be more than coincidental, hasn't it? I suspect yeah. they held back that Matic news or the severity of the Matic news until they could provide it with, with some better news and, and actual centre-backs coming in. I mean, I think Matt Phillips has done really well, but yeah. he's not a he's not a, a, a starting centre-half yet for a title challenger. Um, whether a Quebec or Davies are is, is a different question, but it at least gives them bodies in an area they didn't even have that. Has there, has there been, um, this is just a, a random question that came into my head, has there been a, a a team outside of maybe the top three or four that you've been really impressed with this year that have taken you by surprise? Uh, I think I, I have been impressed at how Leicester have managed to kind of go again. We, we look at certain teams in the Premier League and, and Liverpool are maybe one, and at the other end of the table, Sheffield United definitely are, that kind of struggled after lockdown and then were slightly unable to push forward and replicate what they'd done in the first half of the season. And I kind of worried if Leicester might do that because they didn't bring in a huge number of players in the summer and they had that awful second half of the season and that tail off of missing out on Champions League. I'm not saying yeah. they won't do the same again this season, but the way that Rodgers has managed to kind of gear everyone up to go again is is pretty impressive. And and I really like watching Brighton. I know that they, you know, I know they're in a position they probably wouldn't want to be at the moment, albeit at least they beat Spurs to kind of move away from that that bottom three. But they they are a club that, that seems to be doing the right things. They signed Moses Casado in, in the final days of the window. That's another transfer, like looking forward. It always feels like they're building for the next year. And as long as they don't fall into the trap of forgetting about the current season, um, I think they're a club that's geared to go in the right direction. Yeah, I think tomorrow night's going to be difficult for Liverpool, to be honest. Brighton away from home have been much better than they have been at home. Yeah, which massively. Is, yeah, they, strange, but yeah, they they they've obviously got that kind of monkey off their back in terms of the the first home win. But yeah, mm-hmm. the way they set up to the possession play, the technical midfielders they have, they just need that goal score. You know, if they had a Callum Wilson or a Patrick Bamford, I think they'd be top half by now. Um, and yeah, they, they seem to be able to play at a similar level against every opponent. They produce as good against. Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester United as they have against teams in the bottom half. They've a brand new player as well. Oh, sorry, Brenton, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say when you were um, mentioning Leicester there, how, how big an impact? You obviously seen them struggle with how Vardy recently. How, how big an impact do you think that's going to have on their top four chances? Because it seems the same with with Harry Kane and Spurs. Like, unfortunately, we get this around this time every season with Kane, where where he gets a bad injury and Spurs tend to tail off. Do you think that's that's going to be a struggle for Leicester because there's no obvious replacement there? Yeah, it's the flip side to having a brilliant striker who persuades you to build your attack around them, which which Tottenham and Leicester have both done. And, and they're also pretty unique, certainly unique within their own squads. Um, I mean, Leicester, they probably should have brought a backup striker last summer because I think everyone at the club kind of knew that Kelechi Inacio wasn't 
quite up to scratch in terms of certainly in terms of replacing what Vardy does. Um, so yeah, they probably I suspect Brendan Rodgers will regret that now, and I think they'll probably address that in the coming summer. Um, but they have to find a way, and they have to find a way without Wesley Fofana as well, who's apparently out for four or five weeks, and that's a huge <laughs> thing. You know, that's the difference between Leicester and the teams above them. I think first team on first team when when all are fit and firing, they are as good as anyone. But yeah. there's just not those resources behind the scenes to to get that 22, 23 players you know that what I'd call that international squad of players where players can fit in yeah that's for fun and you just like I know they say on Tuesday uh, but I'd injured and possibly could be coming back but they got only got Pereira back Castagna gets injured and now for Fana you sort of feel like the one or two injuries away from just not imploding on them because I think if they even finish fifth again it's a great season for them but the real chances of doing something pretty special this year are going to slip away on them especially with You'd think Man City, they look like they're ready to go on a bit of a run. They are on a run at the minute, but what I mean is just start blowing teams away. So it's going to be quite difficult for them to maintain that, I think, Leicester, going forward the rest of the season. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as you say, it shouldn't take away from the achievement because the fact we're even talking about them as, you know, at one point potentially title challengers and Mm -hmm. certainly top four contenders is an absolute testament to what Brendan Rodgers has done. Because if you look at... You look at the Craig Shakespeare and the Claude Puel tenures, there was nothing really to suggest that 2015-16 wasn't a, an extraordinary exception to their rule. And yet Rogers is, you know, he, he hasn't led them to a title challenge yet, but he's taken them. You know, this team is performing as well as, as that team did, I think. It's just that the other clubs around them have been kind of geared into action to improve as well. I, this might sound a bit stupid, but... Because obviously what happened with that team. But this team now, I'd be more fearful of than that team. I think this team on... on a, I know that team won the league. This sounds very, very stupid. But if you look at it on people, I think this team is is better uh, all round. I think it has different ways to play. Uh, yeah. That Leicester team were, were an incredibly, incredibly good counter-attacking team. And it also should be said, in contrast to now, suffered very few injuries during the season. You know, Vardy, mm. Mares, uh, Kante... Morgan, Huth, that spine of the team barely missed a game during that season. Um, so yeah, I think they have different ways to play. I think I think that that season just sent a message to to Liverpool, to Manchester United, to Manchester City that um, they they didn't want to let it happen again. That they couldn't let a, a kind of supposed upstart embarrass them. Uh, and the the normal reaction to that is to spend quite a lot of money in various different positions. Let's sort of talk about yourself now, if that's okay, Dan, and your career. Um, when was it? When did you decide that you wanted to become a football writer and author? What What was it? Was it something at school, or were you always interested in it? Uh, I've always been in. Well, I've always loved football, and I've always been interested in writing, but I'd never really considered marrying the two together. I, after university, I, I took a year out and went travelling, watching football. So I I started in South Africa and. Uh, did a few countries in Africa and then went up to, from Africa to Greece and went up through Europe and went to about 13 different countries in Europe. And in about six months, I, you know, I, I watched, you know, numerous football matches. And I was trying to basically my aim was to try and watch as many derbies as I could, nice. um, which was great. Um, but again, I, you know, I saw that as a kind of enjoyment thing rather than a preparation for any sort of career. And I was really lucky in that I, I was doing a inverted commas normal job. And uh, I lived with a couple of people I worked with. And one of them 
said, you know, why don't you start a football blog? And I, I think I was probably just in that last cohort where you could start a blog and and without getting incredibly lucky, it could lead to something a bit more than that. And there was a kind of space uh, in the industry for people to progress. And, you know, people like Jack Lang and Michael Cox did exactly the same. Um, and from there, it, it, yeah, it snowboarded really quickly. I, I was hugely fortunate enough to have Nick Miller as a family friend and was able to kind of write for Football 365 for free initially. And then when he moved on to go freelance it, it, it became the natural step for them to ask me to to do it full time which was brilliant so um yeah like everyone like everyone I had a contact in the industry and I think it's very hard to do that otherwise uh, and I'm very lucky about that um but yes that was my route how uh, I was listening to a podcast with um Simon Cooper yeah uh, it was with the 42.ie their, their website over here um it was behind the lines podcast it's a brilliant podcast it has journalists like yourself and football writers and sports writers on it talks about their career and different things and he was saying that the actual landscape in british and irish football writing is changing whereas because he, he's obviously talks about the dutch football writing and said they always talked about tactics and they always talked about what should have gone on here and even their footballers would have interviewed and they would have talked brilliantly whereas over here for a while it was always tabloidy and yeah. there is still a lot of tabloid, but do, have you found now with the likes of the Athletic coming through and Football 365 and your blog and different things that it's expanding now because we're seeing like Tom Warville, we're seeing uh, Michael Cox, we're seeing yourself talk about tactics and get into it more. Do you think it's expanded in, in a, and, it's, and it's better now? Yeah, I think that's probably been a natural um, progression, albeit a delayed impression, um, progression from, from the rise of the internet. You know, there's so much information out there um to to amateurs and professionals alike that that you know that that source just wasn't around before unless you went to matches and made your own notes you know the 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 amount of football on telly wasn't there and and you know things like football manager and the rise of the kind of armchair manager i think has has probably fueled that too but i think it's, it's changed in two distinct ways i think firstly it's um is the tactic side and secondly I think it's a human interest side I think footballers now are, are far more rounded and far more prepared to talk about non-football things or things that relate to football rather than the football itself and and I think there's there's been a huge appetite for those stories because with the rise of social you know social media was meant to bring fans closer to players and I'm not sure whether that's really happened I think uh, it's just they're, they're distant in a different way um but the human interest side of it really can bring fans closer to players. You know, they can recognise parts of their own personality and their own stories and their own lives in those players. And as a reader, that's the thing I gravitate towards. Yeah, that's a good point on social media because, not to take away from this conversation, but your latest piece this morning that came out was obviously, unfortunately, we still see morons racially abusing footballers. Mm. and it's coming from because fans aren't allowed on the pitches or near pitches anyway and a lot of it's coming again from social media and we actually talked about this on our show which we did last night which will be going out uh today which will be the second so this will be your podcast this podcast going out in a week later so it'll be in a week's time but we talked as well about it and you had a really interesting point we actually said on last night how we think how, how can how can you manage this and um like with a digital passport but I, I never took into consideration the fact that maybe people don't want 
to uh, their identity be known because of they're not involved in being race running because they just want to keep things private, which is 100% yeah. fair enough. So it's such a, a real weird situation to be in. But the, touching the point of the boycott, and when I read this first this morning, Daniel, your article, and people should go and read it. Go on the Daniel Stories uh, Twitter, uh, Daniel Story 85 Twitter, and get it, or go on to um, sport.opus.com when you find it. So it's a really good one this morning, Daniel. I'm not just saying that because you're on. Thanks very but much. The boycott thing, I, when, I, when I first read that, this is me being silly, like, and wee bit un- unintelligent i actually took it as a boycott from playing oh, okay yeah right and i actually think that is something that we could have down the line and i would be all for it i would be 110 percent if marcus rashford announced or whoever announced that they're they're not playing this week until something is done i think that would be such a powerful moment we've seen this happen in american sport and it'd be powerful and you're always going to get detractors because people are morons but do you think they could even go down that line it's it's a, um, a more extreme version of what I su- suggested. I suspect it's a slightly idealistic ambition in that players now are so um, not wrapped up in because that that sounds like a criticism, but their value and their marketing potential and the performance of their clubs are so tied into one another that I think it would it would be very a very difficult thing to pull off unless unless every Premier League club said, we are not going to play this weekend because of it. Um, I, I think it would be very hard to pull off from a, a kind of individual or even an individual club point of view. Yeah. Um, and in this busy season, I don't suspect anyone at Premier League level has even considered it. But I agree with you that it would be a heck of a statement. And, and it might take a heck of a statement because, um, you know, individual players have boycotted social media before. We've had the whole kind of, we had that black squares thing where, players blacked out their profile photos as a, as a show of solidarity but it doesn't feel like that solidarity really works it's an admirable statement and uh, i don't want to force anyone into anything or persuade anyone into anything but i think it's probably going to take more than that because um it's too easy for the social media companies to to talk a good game without doing very much about it do you think that that the the uh, you were saying about the black squares and stuff like those sort of statements seem to to come and go very quickly and mm. it's it's very good on the day and maybe on the week that they do something like that but you know the real the real thing is to is to hit the the social media companies where it hurts like the players completely coming off it surely is a better way to to attack the problem yeah i think there's, there's i mean social media has this huge issue of um of kind of gesture politics or gesture action which is that you kind of do something which is a statement and and shouldn't be knocked but doesn't actually or doesn't always achieve very much and also in some people although I'm not going to make any accusations against anyone here it can lead to a a kind of overwhelming mood of well I've done my bit and I'll just sit back and wait for uh, things to change actually history shows us on, on any number of issues that only through meaningful campaigning and meaningful action not gestures do things change um and to my mind although as i say i wouldn't knock anyone for it it's certainly better than nothing but things like that risk just becoming gestures that that don't actually achieve very much yeah we something something drastic needs done and it can't just be gimmick's not the right word i just can't think of the word but it, it can't just be something like that something 
really drastically done because it's actually it's very sad now. Yeah. You know, and I think I said this last night to the lads. It shouldn't mean more, but when it's Marcus Rashford, like it just it it does feel like, and it shouldn't, but it does feel really sad. It's he's really pathetic. Yeah, I you know, agree. Because he like this is such a strange thing, but I'm a Liverpool fan, but I absolutely adore Marcus Rashford. I absolutely adore him, and he's a brilliant footballer too. And he'll probably score a winning goal against us someday and break my heart, but I don't care. Like he's such a a wonderful human being for what he's doing, and the and the real sad and sick irony of this is he's probably doing it for some of these people's children. Yeah, and and look, the social media creates a very extreme environment in which people both. Um, have the power to act a famous person in and um, not guarantee but certainly give themselves a sporting chance of that that player seeing it Um, it also has a completely unfettered system whereby except in isolated cases they can do it um, without fear of retribution or punishment Um, and and those players have never been more famous, have never been more, what they do has never been deemed as important to, to, to some supporters as, as it does now, for better and for worse. And, you know, football has this incredible power to give people happiness. And unfortunately, the flip side to that is that people tend to view football as a prism for their entire mood and their entire personality. And that's a really unhealthy thing, I think. And it's a very hard thing to change. Not to um, grossly uh, sideways skip into a football chat here and talk about Nottingham Forest, Daniel, because you're a, you're obviously a Forest fan. We'll come back to the writing towards the end of the show, if that's okay, because I want to yep. get your thoughts on your favourite piece you've ever written. But yes, you're a Forest fan. You're from Ireland, so um, yes. you're, you're, you probably hate us. A lot of people seem to hate us because we're not from... There is our team play that we support them. <laughs> I got abuse for three years solid when I lived in Liverpool. Um, why don't you support your local team? Because they're shite, my local team. That's why I don't support them. And I played for the youth team when I was younger, and I know they're rubbish. But anyway, um, you're a Forest fan. What has it been like being a Forest fan over the last couple of years? Because you've had issues with owners and almost getting playoffs and different managers. What's it been like? And then we'll talk about previous Forest teams and, and how great they were afterwards. Yeah, it's been uh, the same roller coaster that you know you, you can have all the highs and lows you want but if you keep repeating them season after season it becomes quite tedious and and that's the situation that Forest are in they have a phenomenal turnover of players I think we've signed well we signed 18 this season we signed at least as many last season I think we've signed 74 under our current owner who's only been in place for three or four years um it is a it's a basket case of a club it really is and until that changes um nothing sustainable will change you know forests have this um kind of historic reputation of being a big club that if you asked you know 50 30 to 50 year olds to name their ideal premier league forest would probably be in most of them but the reality is we haven't been in the premier league since 1999 and there's a reason for that and that's because the club has been um owned and managed badly by a succession of of different people and I'd like to think that these owners were different, but I always remember the time that we sold. And the reality was, is that this was the only owner that the previous owner would sell to. And the previous owner was a became a a disaster. Um, And it's not as bad as that behind the scenes, but it's not perfect by any means. And there's a huge bloated squad of players. Uh, And because we change manager at least once a year, some of those players were signed 
three or four managers ago and that's not easy for anyone what's it what's it been like then for you as a fan like to because for us like two european cups sitting yeah. in the trophy cabinet um brian clough like one of the greatest managers of all time yeah so, like, it's such a strange as you said basket case it is. I mean, there's two things really to say. The first is that those times were the exception, the the Brian Clough exception, because before then we were a fairly you know middling provincial club, and and now we're a fairly middling provincial club. And the exception is those those glory years that lasted probably slightly longer than they should have done, but had at their core, um, I'm biased, but I would say the most astonishing uh, three years of in terms of surprise of any English club in history um, and yeah we're not that anymore and Forest fans are slowly learning that there's you can be proud of those times but they mean absolutely nothing now and, and on a kind of personal level I'm very jealous of those people who saw them I was born in in 1985 I, I saw the last years of Clough my first game was the you know the the game after the FA Cup final the start of that next season so I missed it all and I'm incredibly jealous of that I mean I wouldn't change it for the world obviously but yeah I've seen one very good season in my maybe one and a half very good seasons in my lifetime of being a Forest fan which was when I was nine and ten years old Um, so I've missed out on all that and as I say I wouldn't change it for the world because it's a part of being a Forest fan even if you didn't see it Um, but it I mean it feels light years away now what? Do you think there is like a um, a case for obviously we've seen you know in recent years Leeds as well and and Forest is a a massive club but like Leeds was like like Leicester um we've seen projects kind of put in play on and I know projects is is always a word that's thrown around but you know surely someone looks at, at Forest and, and thinks they're they're an attractive club to um to start a project. I hope so. I mean, we have become a statue to short termism, quite frankly, um, not just the players, but the managers and the behind the scenes stuff. And, and the reality is, is that football is too smart now. You can't you can't shortcut or short term your way to sustainable success. It has to be built on something solid. And Forest hasn't really been built on anything solid for getting on for a decade now. Um I hope that that they spot that because it it feels like they're still looking for that different way of doing things, but not different in the Brentford or the Leeds or the Leicester sense or the Swansea sense before that. But in the um, spend money, get loads of players and hope it finally clicks. And I mean, to my mind, with the the money they had um, and Evangelos Maranakis is a a billionaire, um, it should be easier than this. Um, but I think with that wealth and that club ownership comes a, an impatience. And also, I should say for both owners, I think a kind of a lack of delegation in, in key areas. I'm not saying he, he tries to pick the team, which was the rumour about the last owner. But there certainly seems to be a um, I want to do this my way, even though I'm not necessarily a football expert. What, what would you do if you were in charge? Um, I would sell as many players as I could I would accept that there was going to be two years when Forrest didn't even attempt to get promoted but just kind of got the house in order and I really do think it would take that long we're very fortunate that throughout all of this the academy led by Gary Brazil who who deserves the freedom of the city quite frankly is is still producing so I would 
bring those players into the first team and see if they are good enough because all evidence suggests that they are. Um, I, I'm not saying only use those players, but be a little bit more savvy with things. Um, I'd bring in a, a tactician rather than a, a name. We've either gone for name managers or managers who are there because they had a history at the club. So Stuart Pearce and Martin O'Neill. Uh, I'm not averse to having a, a manager that does that, but look for younger coaches. Um, but more importantly than anything is to give them time. And the fans have to accept that as well because they want promotion every season. But it's, you know, I remember there was a, a we are serious about promotion campaign, are you, um, which began in the, the season that Forest were relegated to League One. And it's kind of become this really ironic joke for Forest fans. But Fans buy into that as well. They expect to be in the top six every year. And I think if you reset the club and accepted that they would finish mid-table, then you might be able to do something like a Brentford because the name of the club is still attractive, I think, to players. And if they have some money behind them, then they've always paid well. They've just paid to the wrong people. Yeah, like, if not a Forest got promoted back in the Premier League, everyone would know who they were. Yeah. and you know, they, like, it's like when Leeds get back in, it's like, ah, oh, Leeds are back. Same exactly. as Aston Villa. Yeah. And it's no disrespect to if Brentford came up or whatever, because they haven't been. I'm not disrespecting them all, but it's it's nice for other fans, you know, if you see, ah, oh, Forrester back in it. What a yeah. ground that'll be to go to for an away day. It is, and it's a huge compliment to us because um, that's because of the history. And it's because we played football the right way through that history that we still cling on to that reputation. Um but in the nicest possible way to my own club, those people haven't watched Forest much recently because <laughs> they don't play good football. They're not getting particularly good results. There doesn't ever seem to be a plan. And there also seems to be at least half a new team every year. Yeah. I, I was reading this morning about the previous owner and he signed 14 and 17 players in two windows in a row. Yeah. And then obviously you highlighted that as well. So And plus, we know what it's like to watch Martin O'Neill manage. We've been through that pain. <laughs> Uh, so we, know, we we feel your pain, brother. Don't worry about that. Um, let's talk about previous Forest teams and 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 more so like that team through the nineties that had some very special players. Patrick, that's also part of the the, the football babble, but he he's working today, so he can't be on. Um, he wanted me to ask you a question about Stan Collymore, if that's okay, Daniel. Yeah, of course. Um, he wanted to know, could you ask him how good he thought Stan Collymore was, and if he thinks there's an element of unfulfilled potential due to his attitude. What sort of ceiling um, do you think he could have reached? He was, without doubt, the, you know, I have I have Forest players who I I remember more fondly because of you know Stuart Pearce and and Nigel Clough and Andy Reid and Chris Cohen, but Collymore was the most talented player by a mile that Forest have had. Um, there was that there was basically two seasons, ninety three, ninety four, when we got promoted and then. 94-95 when we finished third in the Premier League after being promoted where he was the best striker in the country. I honestly believe that. I think Alan Shearer probably got better service, but I think Collie Moore for those two years was an extraordinary footballer. And I also think he was a fo- We talk about attitude. I think with, with Collie Moore, it runs far deeper than that. You know, he he has well-documented mental health issues and yeah. I don't think it's it's unfair to say that those issues probably dogged him at the time albeit maybe he didn't even know it but I think in 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 inverted commas in the modern game which uh you know maybe post 2010 I think Collie Moore would have got a lot more help um he isn't a player like Gaza where 
um, the kind of mental health stuff was almost part of his game. You know, you didn't know what to expect from Gascoigne because he was so supremely talented, but so supremely flawed. Whereas with Collymore, it was just all all talent and um, you know his pace, his poise. Some of the goals he scored in ninety four, ninety five were were absolutely astonishing, and um, it's it's a great shame. It really is because he he could have been in any other era. He could have been a thirty goals for England striker. He was honestly that good. Yeah, he, uh, Patrick also says, does he think he could have got four more England honours? Yeah, he he could, but he was a he was a he, well, he was he was sold or perceived as a difficult player to manage, and yeah. you look at the strikers that England had in the mid nineties with with Shearer and Fowler and Ferdinand and Andy Cole and yeah Sharing and Matt, Le- Matt, yeah, Matt Letizia just behind them. There was Ian Wright. There were so many that you could only really have three or four of them in the squad. And the reality is is that other players were scoring goals and were perceived to be easier to manage. And you know England did pretty well during that you know, Euro 96, etc. And I'm not saying Colin Moore would have won them that tournament because I don't think he would. But yes, his his ability now is would be absolutely perfect for England. He was frightening at times, Colin Moore. Like, he, like I know we, we Liverpool signed him and, and he was class, but just think some of his force, like some of his, like the way he could strike a ball sometimes. Oh, yeah. It was like Batistuta and Ronaldo, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo-esque sometimes, the way he it, just thump it. Yeah, and he's one, you know, I started watching him when I was seven, eight years old. Yeah. So you kind of, 20 odd years later, you kind of think, well, maybe they're slightly rose-tinted memories. But you watch his goals back now and, and it wasn't. It, he really yeah. was doing those things. Um, yeah, he, he had everything. He really did. If you were picking your Forest five aside, what is it? Uh, well, the players I watched. Uh, is probably Mark Crosley in goal, Stuart Pearce at the back, um, Collymore definitely up front. And then I'd probably go for two players who weren't... If I was picking the best players, then players like Steve Stone would be in there. But in terms of the ones I love, it would be Chris Cohen and Andy Reid, who were two players who just, in very different ways, absolutely exemplified what, what loving Forrest means to me. Reid had this outrageous skill with um this kind of work rate and temperament that became you know he he did work hard he just wasn't fit all the time and he clearly had you know you'll know as well as anyone that the issues around the kind of the weight and that sort of thing hung around his neck and and held him back at premier league level but he was a joy in the championship and chris cohen is is a superhuman footballer he really is he's he he works works so hard uh, he overcame three cruciate knee ligament injuries, which each one of them could have ended his career. He he tells a story about inviting your, the the forest physios to his wedding because he'd spent so much time with them over a three year period, and yet <laughs> he came back from that to save us from relegation a few years ago with a goal on the final day. And he is now well, he was a coach at the club. He's now moved on to be a a coach elsewhere because people have very high hopes of him and if you know we talked about how i would reset forest if chris cohen is forest manager one day then the club will be a better place for it oh nice there's a real there's a there's a workman-like feel to that five side isn't there <laughs> yeah good. well pierce is taking no prisoners as well so we'll have an extra man advantage at one point um <laughs> yeah there is there is and i think football you know football fans 
that's why I talk about Reed and Cohen because I think they're the two type of extreme types of footballers that you you fall in love with the the ones that you think would you know bleed red and white in Pierce and Cohen's case and then the the explosive talent of of Reed and Collymore albeit in in very different ways that, that's why I, I adore that's why I love Jordan Henderson yeah because like, you know you you'll know this but the the nonsense he received for years from Liverpool fans, yeah. never mind fans from other clubs, yeah, he gets, we, it, still gets from other clubs. But the nonsense he got, and it, Brenton knows this, like it used to boil my head. Yeah. Because I I just love how much like how much he gives. Even the other day, it's, fans put up a video of him constantly talking during the Tottenham game, and there was so much guff said about it. But I loved it. Like I I could listen to him talk well, for ninety minutes. It doesn't stop. No, as fans, we, we, we want we, we want two extremes. We want players who can do things that we can never dream of doing. And we want players who do the things that we think we would do if we were on the pitch, which is not even necessarily with ball at feet. Or the, and Henderson's clearly a very, very adept footballer. But it's the, the passion and the, you know, that he wants it as much as we want it. What, what's your favourite Forest memory? Um. Very good question. Uh, I mean, the, that 94-95 season was was amazing. Um, <laughs> we we did things that we shouldn't have done. I, that you know, we won seven one away at Sheffield Wednesday. Um, I remember, although weirdly, I think my my favourite Forest memory is, is not even a game I was at. It's uh, we beat Tottenham four one away, and Lars Bohinen scored a chip. Um, which Tottenham, the Tottenham end, you watch it on the videos back and most of the Tottenham end just stands and applauds it. And I think that it's a very a weird football niche, but when your team is playing so well or when a player is playing so well, the opposition fans, and it probably wouldn't happen now because of the kind of rise of tribalism, but um, when opposition fans kind of stand to applaud it, um, you kind of know you've got a good thing going on. And, and it also felt slightly dreamlike in that, it, it, we knew it wasn't going to last. We knew that we weren't a rich enough club for for Collymore to stay and Stone to stay, and those you know those those prize assets would move on at some point. But for one season, it was remarkable. Was Brian Roy? Yes, yeah. So it would have been you know, Collymore and Roy. Talk to me about Brian Roy, because like people forget about Brian Roy, but he went on and scored in the World Cup quarter final for Holland. Yeah, we when we signed him, we signed him from Foggio and it was a kind of, it felt like a, well, it was a coup, but it, it felt like it was a, a kind of a typical early 90s signing in that this was a player slightly, or intrigued to play in England, but slightly winding down his career. Um, I'm not sure how hard he trained. He lived next door to my dad, actually, for a while. So we would kind of peek through the fence to, <laughs> uh, and then Pierre van Hooydonk bought that house from him when he came. So that was a fun time. But um <laughs> Yeah, he, he was a, a gem. I think it might have been the same game against, or maybe a different game at White Hart Lane where he scored one of those kind of Gianfranco Zola flick behind the foot um, yeah. from across. He was just magic. He he just had this ability, if not work rate, and let's face it, he didn't have that work rate. But um, in terms of sheer ability, it was like nothing we'd seen. That was like, that Forest team was wild. Yeah, Stone and Wo- I mean, when you have you're playing Stone and Wone on the wings to provide for Collymore and Roy, and and yet you <laughs> still had that kind of grit and guts of uh, Des Little and Stuart Pearce and Colin Cooper uh, and Mark Crosley. It was a it was a gem of a combination. 
Did you go to any of the FA Cup games? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I got my first season ticket with my mum in, in 91, 92. And I'll talk probably talk about that a bit more when we talk about my favourite piece. But yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I didn't know a huge amount about football, but I knew I loved it. Uh, and then 95, 96 would have been, so I'd have been nine. Uh, and yeah, again, I talked about it feeling unsustainable. It felt remarkable that Forrest were playing and knocking out teams like Leon and Auxerre. And we didn't play. We didn't. We didn't play particularly well in that run. It should be said. Um, but we did. We we we. Steve Chettle scored against Bayern Munich away in the quarterfinal of the UEFA Cup. And Forest were the you know Forest were the last English club in Europe that season, which is insane to think. I mean, I know twenty years is a lifetime in football, but or twenty five years is a lifetime in football, but. Um, that feels like it, it cannot have happened to the same club that I now see doing what it's doing. Those are the tastes. And it, it doesn't matter if you play well or not, really, does it? it, it it's just about the the run, and it actually yeah. sometimes makes it better if you're not playing as well. Yeah, and we 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 got to the quarterfinals without playing that well, which is is crazy, really. Um, you know, as I say, we knocked out Leon and Auxerre, who were good clubs. We knocked out. Malmo, who had, we'd beaten in the European Cup finals, so it was a yeah, it was a great time. Um, and Frank Clark was a was a brilliant manager for us, who never really did anything anywhere else, which kind of adds to that sort of dreamlike uh, memory I have of it. I think Oxford then went on the next was it the next season they chinned Liverpool. Oh yeah, maybe they were a good side. Yeah, they were a good they side. Were. I mean that that bear in mind that that Bayern Munich side we played had. Jürgen Klinsmann and Jean-Pierre Papin up front. So, I mean, I loved Collie Moore and Roy, but this was, uh, yeah, this was different grade. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know the feeling I've turned up at Anfield sometimes. I actually watched Liverpool play at Fiorentina in the Champions League and we got beat 2-0, but I spent the whole 90 minutes just looking at Gilardino. Yeah, just been like, look at him, and then he scored, <laughs> and Martin Kelly was standing right in front of me, and he let out the, this, so many curse words in the one goal, because <laughs> he couldn't believe it, and he's only a young player at the time, but um, that was, yeah, at, sometimes you're at a game, a team just turns up, and they're just much better, and you just end up enjoying them, and I think that's all right. Yeah, that's fine, yeah, and because at the time as well, you know, foreign football wasn't as widely televised, you didn't really know anything about these players, so yeah. when... You know, Bayern Munich have a Mehmet Scholl in centre mid and you think, well, I don't really know anything about him, but he's absolutely <laughs> running the show. So, yeah, fair. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on writing now because this is just me being selfish here, but I, I'm trying to write a blog for the Football Babble and, and, and I've been doing, what is it? I have my second one done, so it's going to go out later on this week. But I just want to know, like, how do you, how do you go about building a piece? It, does something spark in your head, Daniel? And then you just... What what happens to me is something comes into my head and I just have to write it down on my phone, exactly what I'm thinking there and then, so I don't forget it. Yeah. And do you do, you do things like that? Do you make notes and then you'll go back to it? Or, or what, what happens? Yeah, I do. I mean, ordinarily, um, I, I would get more ideas if I'm doing more interviews or getting out and about a bit more. But I'm kind of lucky that I have a, a fairly regular schedule of... You know, I know I need to do an Optus column on a Monday and I know I need to do winners and losers over a weekend. And I know I need to do a column for, for the I newspaper for the Friday morning. So I've kind of got a pattern where I'll probably come up with the idea lying in bed the night before. I then uh, religiously make notes on paper rather than using the laptop, because I think I found that 
with by doing that I wasn't tempted to look at other articles on the same subject or start getting bogged down in yeah. kind of statistical evidence to help support arguments uh, so I, I like to make my notes on paper first and then yeah ba basically I'll just transpose that onto a uh, like a Google Drive document on the computer which spells out in a sentence each paragraph and then I know I've got 12 paragraphs and with those I'll create the piece so it's a kind of long-winded way of doing it um, but being freelance I, I'm fortunate I am you know very busy but I, I kind of give myself the time to do it how I feel is, is properly. You said there about statistics do, do you how, how much of a role do statistics play when you're when you're writing a piece you said you uh, you don't want to look at them too much do you use it then afterwards to, s to sort of support your evidence or yeah I, I mean with things like with winners and losers football 365 clearly there are things that jump out and I've you know I kind of I feel like I really know my football internet so if something strikes in my mind if for example I see let's say I see Wilford and Didi shooting from 30 yards over um, it might flag something to think right let's have a little look at how many long shots he's taken before since scoring and therefore is that a viable tactic do less need to work on that 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 probably in a very basic sense probably reflects what the clubs are doing themselves um, so things kind of flag into my mind but I don't particularly uh, I mean it probably depends on the piece but I don't particularly like using statistics to form the backbone of a piece with very you know, very honourable exception. So if Jamie Vardy breaks the Premier League goal scoring record, that's a statistic everybody knows about and it's worth talking about. But um, yeah. I think, yeah, there's a danger. And some people can do this. I just can't. But some, there's a danger of, of letting the statistics kind of lead the piece rather than the piece using the statistics if I do it any other way. Yeah, it can get a bit even like sometimes yeah, people maybe use too Science. many. You know, like, yeah, or, or if they're not using statistics, sometimes this is myself. You can use too many adjectives. Yeah, and it just looks really blech. Then do you know like, what I mean? So it's Michael Cox is really good at, and it's again, it's something I, you know, he's got a, a different brain to mine when watching football. But he can kind of see something and then um, kind of spot the pattern very quickly. That's that's different. I think that's absolutely fine. That's a really good way of analysing football. But it's yeah. it's when you see you see a statistic and people will say well that enables me to form an opinion and actually certain statistics happen for very very you know for example if a striker scored uh five goals this season that doesn't necessarily mean he's out of form how many chances is he getting where is he taking his chances from and and also is which is the thing i'm really interested in is is there a kind of team reason behind that or uh, even an individual reason you know where's his head at what's going on in 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 his life is yeah, is, the, the human is he side. thinking yeah exactly and there's there's so many different ways to roll things out that you have to be a bit careful i think of pushing yourself down one route what what then as i was sort of touched on it during the pod here what has been the favorite piece that you've ever written i did a piece of, a few years ago which was about um it was called Lionel messi my mum and me um which is yeah. a slightly self self-obsessed headline but it, it was about I kind of had this sort of epiphany that um, my mum as I say my mum and dad split up when I was two or three years old um, and my mum therefore was one that got me into football and I kind of had this dawning realization that she didn't 
although she had gone to watch Forest before, she hadn't for a number of years before before I was born and brought up. And I kind of had this dawning realisation that she went to the football, not because she loved the football like I did, but because I went to the football with her. Um, and she stopped going to the football as soon as I stopped going with her and started going with my mates and stuff. Um, and I felt pretty guilty about that. And uh, so I, and then over the last few years or the last half decade, she's got back into football because she loves watching Lionel Messi. Um, there's <laughs> this kind of fanboy. Fan, yeah, this fanboy and fangirl thing where people support a player rather than a team is is deemed slightly uncouth, I think, in a bit modern but actually that's exactly what she does if Lionel Messi is on the TV it doesn't matter what subscription service is on it she'll watch it and um, because of that we decided the both of us to go and watch Barcelona play and watch Lionel Messi play so the piece was after we both went to watch Messi play together in in the new Camp lovely yeah again it's I mean as I say it's very self-obsessed because I talk about human interest stories and that's my human interest story which probably breaks several rules of of journalism and writing but I, I loved writing it like I that's strange because I've not that I am in I'm levels 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 behind you Daniel but I wrote uh, my first piece um last last week wasn't it Brent yeah uh about mm-hmm. this thing me and my dad have this thing my, my dad's not well at the minute he he has cancer he, he's he's home now from hospital he got home last night which is class and he's going to beat it but um we we have this thing so no matter what happens our, our relationship is a bit strange it 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 can be good and it can be quite bad but no matter what happens when liverpool are playing he will text me the team news an hour before kickoff when it comes through and then he texted me four letters Y N W A. Yeah. No matter what happens, like me and him could be at each other's throats, and we have been. And <laughs> no matter what happens, he'll text me that. Um, I think, I think yeah, the, the, the thing people forget sometimes when they're writing is that it, it, it always. And I say quite often that I'm the one thing I'm fearful of is becoming a kind of professional, big opinions haver on the Premier League. Yeah. kind of forget to take a step back and you know if you're thinking of an article think well hang on it doesn't you can come at this from a different angle it doesn't have to be which big six team am I going to write about today and which big six manager is in crisis it can be something really gentle really personal because that's there will be a million other people like you who have exactly the same thing or a slightly different thing and it makes them feel the same way and that's what writing should do yes it should inform people's opinions but it should also inform people to form a bond with the piece that they find something in it that makes them feel something either positive or negative that um it they have been inspired to do by your writing that has to be the end goal yeah i quite enjoy when a writer or a broadcaster not that i'm nosy but uh tells lets you know a bit about themselves like that's why i absolutely adore adore test cricket on the radio yeah Yeah. because test cricket even and i love baseball on the radio though those commentators will take you into their home you'll be in aggers say for instance on the radio you'll be in his house hearing a story about his barbecue yeah i mean i mean i I, and and the thing is the the best writing and i'm I'm probably talking about more books now although there is some long form writing that does this but is if you pick up a, a book like The Boys of Summer or yeah. uh, Friday Night Lights, and you know I, I do like NFL, but I don't particularly 
I don't watch baseball or I don't watch ice hockey. I don't watch basketball. But if you can pick up a book about those that makes you think not necessarily that I now really want to find myself a basketball team to watch, but just that I'm glad I read that. That taught me something about the sport not in terms of the rules and the play, but just about the kind of feel of the sport that I didn't already know. And I'm, I feel a better person for it. Then that's job done. Yeah. That's, that's why I, that's one of the reasons why I sort of got into baseball was because of the boys of the summer. Yeah. It's such uh, a good, such <laughs> it's a brilliant book. Like, and it is, there's real, there's obviously a, a human side to it, which is, is brilliant, but it's just, there, not to take away this is a football podcast whatever but there's a real like calming side to test match cricket and baseball sometimes that i think your my head maybe needs you know the the bit in between waiting for something to happen which yes. just chatter 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 sometimes you can come away from that from the chaos because especially this season in football where it just seems relentless and, and i know you talked about last week in your piece on the euros which, if we're being honest, it's just someone at UEFA hasn't gone interrailing and has decided, I'm going to go on a massive interrail this summer. <laughs> That's what that is. That's what it looks like, doesn't it, from the outside? Like, let's go on a huge interrail and watch and fall for they, what, what has happened here, Daniel, is someone has heard your story of you travelling around. This is your fault <laughs> now. And now they've decided to have a massive interrail for the Euros. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely. I, I love pieces like that there. And I do remember reading about that and... Uh, and thinking that was lovely, so I'm glad you picked that as your favourite oh, piece to write. Is. is there any um have you any anything in in the pipeline regarding books or anything anything coming up? Have you any ideas or anything? You might yeah, want to tell I'm, us like, but I'm writing one at the moment which I I, I can't say no, too much on, about, but is a is a history of um something um to be <laughs> deliberately vague um and <laughs> yeah, it's the first time I've done one of those kind of. Uh, it's a very mainstream subject, but um, it's the first time I've done one of those right. longer form research books. You know, I had to research for, for the Gaza in Italy and the, the Cantona one, um, but they were deliberately 30,000 word books because that's what the publisher wanted. So it's the first time I've done a slightly longer one of that. Um, and, yeah, I've kind of just I, I was offered to do that. So I've kind of decided that the next one I do will be if not 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 on my terms, but just my idea that forms organically that I then hopefully get a publishing contract for but it's a it's a tough time obviously at the moment because um, the entire industry is probably creaking slightly due to obvious reasons but yeah I do I, I tend to waffle if that if I have a fault when I'm writing so I think yeah that longer form stuff will fit me maybe more as I get older and hopefully cross fingers stay in the industry um because yeah there's that joy of researching a book is like nothing else it's something i would love to do and i have a few ideas in my own head eventually i'd, yeah, like I'd always say do, it. do yeah. it because i think you talked about you know how writing pieces can make you feel i think if you do a book i mean firstly there's nothing like the pride of having a book published in any way shape or form and secondly it's it can feel incredibly uh, kind of um sort of reflective process because it demands a lot of hard work but it it gives you it back kind of daily without getting too twee about it you know you do a chapter and you nail it and it feels in in a world where as a freelancer everything is you know you talk about tomorrow's fish and chip paper but online everything is pushed down the page within an hour of it going live and yeah 
you know it feels like something a lot more wholesome so i would like to do more nice you have something you can pick up yeah yeah. You should have went as well there without telling. You should have went history of the Tottenham. You'd have got such a laugh <laughs> if you'd have done a Kaylini. I thought you were going to. It's a history, and then you paused. Um, that would have been a good laugh. Um, not so much for our Spurs cousins, but it would have been a good laugh anyway. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for giving us your time to come talk to us this morning uh, on the football babble. We really appreciate it. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Um, anyone that isn't reading your stuff yet is being very silly of themselves and should be checking your stuff out <laughs> um, head on to your Twitter at DanielStory85 and then you'll get all your links to everything you're doing and I, I'm I'm biased like, but uh, I read your stuff religiously so I would highly recommend everyone does it and check out that piece uh, uh, on your mum and Lionel Messi That's, it was a lovely piece So um, and best of luck with the new book I look forward to, to when it comes out and seeing what it's about thanks very much